You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got these glasses. And I, you know, it was funny is that most people know me without glasses, uh, except for you guys. So now I look funny without them. I uh, hear like, hey, this looks weird. You don't, put them back on, please. Um, and I will. So I got them like a year and a half ago. Uh, and they have been quite helpful, but they're also a little odd. I see other glasses wearers, and some of you don't want to admit it, so you wear contacts in the room. Uh, so glasses are an interesting thing, and we talk about jokes about like viewing the world through rose-colored glasses or whatever have you, or, oh, my glasses are foggy, or my glasses are this or that. Uh, but I would say fairly, whether or not you have glasses, all of us have ways we view the world. Uh, all of us. Now, not really your physical glasses, but the way that you view the world is your worldview, huh? Surprise, surprise. Like, so you have a way you view it. You have a way you interpret things. You have a way you understand how the world works. You have a way you look at marriage and family and friendship and church and uh, what it means to be a citizen and anything like that. And, And it's bound up sometimes in a really good collection of thoughts and ideas. And sometimes it's just kind of uh, a mishmash of different things you've learned along the way, and they might all fit together, they might not, but we all have it. Uh, so to say that we, are, we operate without worldview, or I could even say like this, we operate without some type of bias really isn't true. All of us operate with a specific lens or lenses with which we view things. Uh, it's the reason that we're always much more uh, generous with people we love who make mistakes versus people that uh, we don't know, right? So like retribution, if I don't know you, if I do know you, hey, you're a pretty nice guy. I actually extend, I have a little rule uh, for like songs with bad theology or theology that I think is bad. And my rule is if somebody I loved wrote the song, would I like the song? Because that helps me to go, you know what? I get it. And you offer, I often apply more latitude once I kind of couch it in, well, if my cousin wrote it, then I would be off of thinking it would be great. I would just maybe have a minor correction. Whereas if somebody else writes, I'm like, that's the worst song in the world. And so we have ways we view things. We have ways that things get bound up. And when it comes to church life or events or anything else, your perspective will not, you can't escape it. And we see that as we get to the end of Genesis, the end of the Joseph uh, narrative and I think the question that I have is this, just you know, with what perspective should we approach God's work in the world? We all have different, different takes, different, you know, like, so how, with what perspective should we approach? I think Genesis tells us, right? So remember where we've been, this is six Sundays in Genesis, and so we saw creation, the call of Abraham, and then we followed that with the sacrifice of Isaac, and then we have three sermons in the Joseph narrative, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has sons, Joseph is the one that we follow for the last really quarter, third of Genesis, we're following the Joseph story. And a lot of ground gets covered in the Joseph story to get us to chapter 50, because what we did last week is we talked about his exaltation in Egypt that interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and Pharaoh's like, you're awesome, I'm gonna put you over here, and now we get to the end. Now, if we remember the Joseph story, it begins with him having dreams. And he goes to his brothers and he says, hey guys, um, this is the Hans International Version, or don't say that, not HIV. This is the uh, Hans Standard Version, HSV, um, of it. 
you know, he goes, hey guys, I've had a dream that you're all gonna bow down to me, right? You're all gonna bow down to me, and they're like, no, that's not gonna happen. And then he has another dream, and he brings dad into it. He's like, no, 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 really, like, everybody is bowing down to me. And dad's like, I think you're crazy, but maybe you're kind of right. And his brothers sell him into slavery, and he goes into Egypt. And then after going into Egypt, he moves from there, and he's in Potiphar's house in Egypt, and then Potiphar's wife lies, and Joseph gets put in prison. Joseph doesn't seem to complain. He takes prison, he's exalted in prison. He interprets the dreams of people in Pharaoh's courts. He goes into Pharaoh's courts uh, after Pharaoh has some dreams two years later, and he tells Pharaoh what his dreams mean, and then Pharaoh sets him up. And so remember, there's seven years of plenty in the land, and there's seven years of famine. We have both of those things going. So we had seven years of plenty, and he says, Pharaoh, I think we need to stockpile everything we possibly can, and then for the seven years of famine, we will be able to dish out needs, right? So people can come, they can buy from us, and that's what starts to happen. Now, we're going a long chunk of the way here in Genesis, so let me just try and catch you up with uh, the visits that have happened. So in chapter 42, Joseph's brothers visit minus his youngest brother, Benjamin. They all go, and they don't know it's Joseph yet. They just know that he's this guy who we go to if we need food. So they are sent from where they are. They go to Egypt, and they look for food. Joseph realizes it's his brothers in chapter 42, but he doesn't yet tell them, so he sends them back with, um, with money back in their, in their bags. They bring all this money, sends them back. They get to dad. He goes, bring your brother back, your youngest brother. I want to see him. They don't know it's Joseph. They go back to dad. And dad, of course, Jacob's like, oh my, why are you guys causing me such consternation? Like, Joseph's gone. Now, one of my brothers, Simeon, like my son is there, he's in prison like as a kind of a down payment to go get Benjamin. Now you wanna take Benjamin and I may never see him again. Like what have you gotten us into? So Jacob's mad. But they run out of food and they make a second famine visit back. Chapters 43, 44, 45, the second visit back, they bring their brother with them. Joseph can no longer contain himself. He knows what's going on and he's weeping. And there's the big reveal. He reveals himself to his brothers. It's me, Joseph. They're a little freaked out as anyone would be, like any movies, like the Count of Monte Cristo, right? Like, like, oh, like, what's going on? So there's this big reveal, and he essentially is like, go get dad, bring them all back. And so he sends brothers back, they get dad, they say, Joseph's alive. He's weeping, Joseph's alive, I get to see my son. And they go back and they have this spot, land of Goshen, they have this spot where uh, they're able to tend to their flocks, to raise their family as this is going on. Pharaoh gets to meet him, like it's just kind of, I, I feel like he's like, hey, meet my dad. Like everyone's just introducing everybody to everyone. And um, we go through the last few chapters and it's kind of that third trip to the land and now they're settling in Goshen. Now remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that God said to Abraham, your descendants will be essentially slaves in a land that is not their own, and they'll be there over 400 years. Well, now we're getting into the land that is not their own. Exodus is gonna jump over centuries to kind of go, then there arose over Egypt a king or a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. 
that gets us to Exodus. But we're now putting some pieces together and God's getting them there. So we get to the Joseph and Jacob and, his, and Jacob's family. They're all there in Goshen. And he blesses his sons. And at the end of chapter 49, Jacob dies. He's done. And in chapter 50, we're dealing with the aftermath of Jacob's death, how Joseph handles it and how his brothers handle it. And there are two competing perspectives in, Jacob, in Joseph's take on what's going on and in his brother's take in what's going on. Now remember, years have passed. We're 20 plus years into the selling of Joseph into slavery. We're beyond that now. Years have passed. And it's interesting to see the way that Joseph's brothers act and Joseph acts as we get into chapter 50. Last chapter of 50, the burial is verses 1 through 14. So, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed his father. They embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. Did I say magicians? Egyptians. Magicians. That was older. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in the tomb. I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. So take me to Canaan. I have ancestors there. So please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, like there's this whole entourage, the elders of his household, the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household, only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded. For his sons carried him off, or carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father Joseph, after he buried his father Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So just stop right there. What do we have? Dad's dead. We're going to bury him at the place where our ancestors are buried, and. Pharaoh not only gives permission, but he sends along people to go with them. So this huge burial train is now kind of moving along to get to the land, and they bury him. They stop at Adad, and then Joseph and his brothers go a little farther in, and they actually finish out the ceremony. So days pass. They have to first embalm him, and then after he's embalmed, they take him, and then they weep for seven days. They go longer, and they return to the land after Jacob has died. And now we have these brothers Next generation up. 
And if you follow the book of Genesis, what you'll find as you read it is you'll see these are the generations of so-and-so, these are the generations of so-and-so, these are the generations of so-and-so. And they always start with the patriarch, kind of the head of the family. So when we get into, like even when we start with Abraham, it's like these are the generations of Terah, his father. As we get into the Joseph narrative, even though we're following Joseph, we read these are the generations of Jacob because we're following by the father. Well, the father's gone. And so now the sons are together. And you can imagine how some of the sons are a little worried about what might happen. Now remember, decades have passed. They've experienced Joseph's kindness. Joseph has taken care of them. They have the land. He's brought them from where they were to now the land of Goshen. He has provided for them. He's cared for them. He's wept with them. He's fed them. And yet, they're still worried. The lens is still there. Let's read the next few verses here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will have us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, that's our verse. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. It's not on the screen, but verse 21, don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted and spoke kindly to them. Do you see those two perspectives? Even amongst people who have experienced God's provision, people who are aware of the promises, people who have made mistakes but then have seen the redemption that God has brought, do you see those two perspectives? We have the brothers first, and here's that first perspective. People and situations don't really change. That's like the cynic. Like, I always have to, in my own heart, fight cynicism. Oh, no, that's just the way that it is. So what do the brothers do? The brothers who did terrible things, terrible things, they go, Dad's dead. Do you think that Joseph was only being nice to us because Dad was alive? And if you think that's a crazy perspective, it is not. The, the influence of mothers and fathers and how their kids behave runs deeply. It's like, hey, you know what? We're gonna go see mom and dad. Let's just, like, let's just not worry about this other stuff. For the time that we're with them, let's just act like things are all good. Because that's what parents want. Like, I want us to, let's just get along. And so parents have this, I want us to get along mentality. And the kids are like, we should probably get along. But once the kids are gone and the will is there on the table, that's when you get to find out what's really going on. And so there they are, the, the 11 brothers are going, I think that Joseph might still be mad. I really think he might, he might want, this is his time to deal with us wrong, angrily. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. 
Remember how many years have passed? And how are they operating? As if nothing changed. They're operating with a view of this world just is the way that it is. That it is just, people don't change, situations don't change, life doesn't change, and we need to figure out a way to be sure that we don't die. I wish that I could say that I wouldn't and don't, wouldn't hold this perspective or don't hold this perspective, but I often do. I mean, think about the amount of times, like the phrase, that's just the way it is. He is who he is, she is who she is, they are who they are, that's just the way that it is. It comes up and exposes what we really do believe, and that's what the brothers are doing in that moment. This is just the way that it is. You might see this when you're praying for perhaps a family member to come to know the Lord, and you've prayed five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and then after maybe 20 years, you're going, uh, you know, because we're reformed, we go, maybe they just aren't elect. And so you wonder if you should just stop praying for them. No, you shouldn't stop praying for them, but we have, all of us have kind of a, a, a time where we tap out sometimes, you know, emotion, uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually, we're just like, I, I really don't know if we can go on this long or anymore. I'm just not sure. And that's what the brothers did. But you and I, brothers and sisters, we know better. We don't often do better, but we know better. We can't operate as believers as if nothing changes and that people don't change. Because if that's the case, then what about the grace that we have received? And what about the life that we have been given in Christ? And what about the joy that we have? And what about the purpose that we have? And yet we're still kind of like, well, I don't really know. So we think in like the perspective of the old self, even though the Lord has made us new. We live as if nothing has changed, even though we know that it has. And we can't figure out how to view life, situations, and people as if God is alive and living and active. We get stuck in how we view things. And instead, I think we need the perspective of Joseph. The perspective of Joseph is, is simple. I, I would say it is this. God's been at work. And he can say what he says, and I think we, I'm gonna try and parse this for us. Bear with me. He can say what he says while still wishing it wouldn't have happened, right? Like, he, he can say, yeah, that wasn't a good thing. You sinned against me. You harmed me. You hurt me. But he also, in that same breath, can realize that that's true and still say, but God was at work, right? God used. So last week, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose, okay? So God is the only one who can take from our sin and our missteps and our mistakes and our frustrations and our anger and our hatred and our bitterness, he is the only one who can take from that and still bring about something redemptive. So Joseph doesn't need to harp in what they did. You ever, you know, sometimes I'm like this, unfortunately, where you just kind of want to 
you know, jam in their pain, you know, so they're around the table, maybe having dinner together, and he's like, oh, you guys, remember when you sold me into slavery, huh? But right? he's just trying to like make them feel bad. He could do that. He could try and just make them feel terrible, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Have you ever recognized either you are kind of at the mercy of someone else or uh, they are at your mercy and you realize the, the, in a sense, just kind of in, 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 a, in a just you know, human to human sense, the, the power that exists there? When someone comes to you and says, I'm at your mercy. That's essentially what his brothers do. They bow down, they say, we are your servants. And in the flesh and how we might operate, we could certainly take that moment and be like, darn right you are. And then you start to tell them how they should live their life differently. Well, listen to what he says. Don't fear. For am I in the place of God? And in that he's recognizing God is the justice bringer. I'm not in the place of God. I am the place of God. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. And, and it's not just so that I would be happy and to live a cool life in Egypt, but to bring about that present result, the survival of many people, right? God is a seeking and saving God. And so what he's doing for Joseph is not just for Joseph, but for the nation that will come. And he is preserving and sustaining the nation that will come by giving them a place in the land, allowing them to grow, which is what we'll see in Exodus, and they will need to be saved even from that. But God is putting Joseph where he put them so that the promises that he gave to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob might continue. And so Joseph isn't reading the situations of like, well, look what God did for me. Which is often how we read it, right? Like, hey God, you know, could you bless me? Could you give to me? Could you, you know, like I'm gonna buy a lottery ticket and the first thing I'm gonna do with it is give. As if God needs our money. That's the wrong way to think about it. Could you bless me? Because if you bless me, I'll bless to be a blessing. I'm definitely gonna bless others. Joseph was not concerned about what he got or what he did or anything like that. His concern as he looks back on decades of his life was to be able to say, look what God did. Look what God did. Look what God took. Look at the mistakes that we made, the sins that we did, the perspective that we had, the anger and the hatred that we had, that you had for me, and the way that all of that happened, and the guilt that dad had for years thinking that I was dead. Look at all of those things and what seemed like a helpless and hopeless situation and see what God did. But do we have the endurance to think like that. To go through, because we'll say something like, hey, I'm in, a, I'm in a difficult season, right? Like, I'm in a difficult season. Things are really hard right now. I'm like, well, how long have you been going through that? It's been like three weeks, four weeks, I think, maybe. You know, we might get as long as like six months, maybe a year, I mean, imagine Joseph, like you're, you're, the, you're his counselor and he sits down and he's like, man, I've just been going through a hard time. Well, how long has that hard time been going on? I don't know, like from 17 to 
I was to 30, at 13 years where I was essentially a slave. Things were pretty good. Uh, even though after dad died, like my brothers thought I hated him. Well, how long is all this going on? 30 years. I mean, we, we're like, we're, we're still in like the, it's been a bad week. Joseph could be like, bad week? Let me tell you about a bad week. Remember the time my brothers thought that it would be cool to kill me and then tell dad that I died and then sold me into slavery instead and now I'm in Egypt and no one knows what's going on? And what does he do instead at the end of this account but to say, look what God did. This is a big challenge for me. I joke a lot uh, with my friends uh, who aren't here, and some of them who are here, and I, I'm like, everyone at Genesis is holier than I am. I'm pretty sure, like more spiritual, uh, definitely much more serious about their faith. Uh, I make bad jokes, as you've heard about 17 of them already. Um, they're really serious about their faith. And so, I, I mean this honestly, like you all amaze me with your love for the Lord. And like, I'm, I'm like, you know, if we, if, we, if we, luckily comparative righteousness isn't really a thing, but just pretend we did. Like I'm, I'm at like a negative five. You guys are like at 80, 90, 100. Like I'm way down here. And so when I read this, I think about myself. I don't really think about you. So I'm just gonna harp on myself here for a second and then be grateful for grace. The question I wanted to end was just where can you apply redemptive thinking? Because that's what Joseph is really doing. He's, replying, he's applying redemptive logic to situations. And he's saying, well, if we apply the lens that God is living and active and moving, how does this change how I might speak about it? And I think about how infrequently I do that. How infrequently and almost fatalistic I can be. Well, God just, you know, just does his stuff and whatever else, and we're just kind of cogs, and we just walk around, right? You know, like, like, like that what we do and how we live and what we believe and how we think and how we speak really has no effect on anything, but it does. Because as people who have been changed and transformed by the grace of Jesus, then we know because of what God has done for us that God could do anything. He could do anything. He could save anyone. He could restore any situation and any moment at any time. That it's never too late. But so often I'm kind of lumped in with the 11 brothers going, has anything really changed? You know what, we better be sure that he likes us. Hey, tell, tell him that dad said that he should be nice to us. That's where I live. Like, let's try to continue to just be sure that I don't die. And Joseph's in this whole other world going, let's look at what God has done. And in that, he doesn't even reject what, he's, you know, he doesn't do this, which is sometimes like a classic uh, pass the buck or not feel the pain which is like, oh no, it's okay. He doesn't say that. He doesn't go, oh, it's okay, don't, don't worry about it, which is sometimes something that we can do if we have been harmed. Don't worry about it. 
I'm like, no, 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 you can totally worry about it. You aren't, like, like in a fallen world, harm is a bad thing, and sinning against people is a bad thing. And what does Joseph say? You planned evil against me. You wronged me. You harmed me and hurt me. But look what God did. And look what God is doing. And so he doesn't, doesn't act like he wasn't wronged. He's just able to speak about where God has moved and been active even through it. And, and as simple a statement as uh, I wrote down here in my notes, like Jesus frees us, and this is like, like this might sound silly, but it's true and it's hard to live out. I wrote, Jesus frees us to think optimistically about people and situations. Like to look at people and not go, lost cause, over, done, can't change, seen it enough, seen it once, seen it a thousand times, that is the way it is, you are who you are. You know, we, but we have these statements that we make and we forget, no, 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 if Jesus has changed me, then really he can change anybody. And it's always that perspective. It's not if, if God could do that to Joseph, how much more could he do it to you? The perspective of scripture is always, hey, I'm terrible and God somehow found me. So don't worry, <laughs> you're fine, I'm a wreck. But that logic, that thinking, it's so otherworldly that it becomes so hard because we often as brothers and sisters don't even reinforce it with one another. When someone comes to us and they're like, man, I did it again, I sinned again, I struggled again, and you're like, you know what? I am sick of your sin. Now there's room for correction and reproof, but to stop believing that God could transform, to stop believing that God could change, to stop believing that God could make something beautiful come out of it, there shouldn't be that vocabulary for us as believers because we know better. And yet still so often, that's how we speak and that's how we think. Now, I'm conveniently avoiding this aspect of, I'll tell you what the part I'm conveniently avoiding just so you can hold me accountable to it, but um, I'm conveniently avoiding the fact that sin is really difficult and delicate to deal with. Like, it's not just like, hey, brother, just love Jesus more and you'll be good, because like those little tropes don't really work, right? There's often significant work that repentance must bring about. There's, it's not just like, you know, you might be forgiven fully and a new person, but then the, the working out of what that means and how it means to be a new person and live as a new person and live in right relationships with people, like that kind of work is hard work. And I would imagine that even Joseph's brothers are sometimes going, you know, they're like five years later, eight years later, whatever else, they just go, do, do you think that like, he really forgave us? And they have to kind of go back to how they thought about it and they have to be reminded, no, this is really how it works. I'd be like, God was at work. Because it's so hard for us to look at the situations in our life, look at the people, look at the marriages, look at the stories and go, God could change this. 
Because so often when we're walking through the middle of it, we're not sure. We're not sure. And that's why we must encourage, challenge, spur on, speak life to one another. Because somebody else in your community group or that you're interacting with throughout the week might say, I'm just not sure what may come of this. And you might be the brother or sister who's beside them and go, no, 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 no. Let me tell you. Let me remind you. Let me point you to how good God is. Because I do think there will be times when you feel like everything's a lost cause. And there will be times when, for whatever reason, the Spirit is working in just the right way and you go, no, 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 no. This is perfect and God is moving and God is active and God is alive and God wants this to be better than we could ever think that it was. And in those moments, you can speak to those of us who are going, can this ever change? Can this ever be different? So with what perspective can we approach God's work in the world with a perspective of redemption? Because we too have been redeemed. We have been saved from and out of our bondage and our slavery. We have been given life. We should be believers, the most sober and optimistic people in the world because we understand the depths of sin and we also understand the goodness of grace and redemption. And so we have to hold on to both of these things. And so often we're gonna operate in one or the other. We either just kind of naively think it's all gonna be good without actually realizing the work of repentance that it sometimes takes, or we just kind of live in this life is always terrible and people really stink, and we can't have the right perspective on what redemption might bring. But for the believers, the brothers and sisters together in Christ, we can hold on to both of those. Understanding the depths of sin and thus thinking about life soberly and honestly but also in that seeing the goodness of God to us in Christ and being able to operate and think and speak as those who have been redeemed. So where can you apply that thinking? Likely anywhere, anywhere. That the gospel calls us to think better just about any situation that you might be in. There's a way that recognizing the redemption that we have in Jesus and the life that we have in Jesus changes the way that you view whatever might be going on. Or if you feel like you're viewing it right, if you spend another five minutes thinking about it, you go, oh man, there's other ways that we can think about what God could do here. And so that's the challenge for us. Where can we apply redemptive thinking? Probably anywhere. So what are those situations where maybe you've given up? And you're not, you're not believing and speaking in keeping with what you know, which is that God can change anyone and anything, that there's no amount of sin, pain, and suffering that God just goes, I can't help with that. That's beyond what I can do. But he can transform any situation. And I pray that for me, I'm gonna pray that for us now. God, 
we need you and we need to remember you and we need to speak as if the things that we have believed are actually true. That Lord, we are to be transformed by your grace and that we can look at life with a different lens because it comes from you. It is otherworldly, it doesn't belong here because you are moving and living and active, that you are redeeming and changing. So Father, where we fail, where we struggle, where we sin, and our hearts get hardened and we don't think anything can come of it, might you remind us of just how powerful you are, just how gracious you are, so that we could speak about those things. Help us, Lord, to be sober and optimistic about what you're doing in our midst and what you're doing in this world. Be with us, guide us, help us in our doubts, strengthen us, give us time with one another to encourage our hearts in you, Lord. We need it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.